With more than 500 programs a year, there is never a dull moment at the Commonwealth Club. If you're a fan of this podcast and you like hearing new and provocative discussions with the most interesting people in the world, consider showing your support by joining the Commonwealth Club and ensuring that the conversations never end. Visit commonwealthclub.org slash special to get special rates on membership. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. (laughs) Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to today's program at the Commonwealth Club. My name is Chris Hufnagel, and I'm a professor in the Schools of Information in the School of Law at the University of California, Berkeley. And I'm delighted today to be here with Commissioner Elizabeth Denham. Elizabeth Denham is United Kingdom's Information Commissioner. She has held that position since 2016 and is recognized as being one of the most influential people in her field, most recently being named in Politico's list of 28 people shaping, shaking, and stirring Europe. She's the chair of the International Conference of Information Commissioners, which works globally to improve access to information rights. Uh, she's been decorated several times for her service in government, uh, most recently as commander of the most excellent order of the British Empire. Congratulations, commander. There could be no better time than now to have a conversation with Commissioner Denham because so many of the most important companies in the world are here in San Francisco and their operations, of course, uh, closely interact with your regulatory authority. Commissioner Denham will start with prepared remarks and then we'll have a Q&A. So, Commissioner Denham, I'm going to invite you to the lectern here. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. Thank you very much, and um, I'm delighted to be here in in San Francisco this afternoon, a commander of the most excellent British Empire. It is the most excellent British Empire. Um, It's great to be here in San Francisco. Um, It's a privilege that I have the kind of career that allows me to visit places like San Francisco and it's a city that's actually familiar to my ancestors. And I did a, a little bit of research before coming here. My second cousin, Stanley Mockford, his choice of career brought him to San Francisco in the 1950s, where he was based just a few miles north of here. Unfortunately, Stanley Mockford's choice of career, which was running car theft rings around the U.S. and involved in a shootout with federal sheriffs. That took him to Alcatraz in the mid-1950s. And I looked it up, and he was prisoner number 1067. So that's Stanley. Happier note, my, my son's career brought him here as well. But um, my son, Tyler, is a health app developer, so hopefully he will stay out of Alcatraz. But um, his rented flat, though, in the Castro really reminded me that he probably had not a lot more square footage than Stanley had. Um, but I've been able to visit professionally here a few times, too, and I've always really enjoyed it. In fact, when I was talking to Chris in the room and we were trying to figure out when we had last seen each other, um, I was at an international data protection and privacy commissioners meeting in Israel, and we think that was around 2009 or 2010. And I remember I was on a platform sharing a stage with big companies. Um, there was a regulator. Civil society was on that panel. And when I looked out to the audience, I thought, where's all the people? And then I found out, I said, why weren't you at our panel? How come I didn't see you there? And they said to me, what's an app? And, you know, that wasn't, that wasn't very long ago. And as I was walking over here with my colleagues, because I've been in this field a really, really long time. You may have got that by now. But as I was walking over here, um, my, my colleague John pointed up to the Salesforce tower. And I said, well, I remember back in 2008, when I was federal, uh, the assistant uh, commissioner for Canada on the federal level, and somebody said, there's this company that wants to meet with you, and they're called Salesforce. 
And there was nobody in the office that knew about Salesforce way back in 2008 and this whole cloud computing. Anyway, my point, a lot has changed in privacy regulation over the last 10 years. And I think that we are living in a transformative time in our digital history. So when I look at the cases that are on my desk today, they are unrecognizable from even five years ago. And I think, and we're going to talk about this in the Q&A, that the, the cases are more complex for a start. And for example, my office is finalizing a report on police practices of extracting data from the mobile phones of victims of sexual assault. It's a really tricky issue and tricky issues across the, the government. We're also investigating the ad tech system for real-time bidding. And we're investigating the live use of facial recognition technology by police forces in the UK. And what I, what I find is really different today from even five years ago is the answer to, is this legal? is rarely a binary answer anymore. So, and I know your your practitioners, your developers, your perhaps legal counsel, and the I think you must realize that the financial and the reputational and the human stakes are higher than they've ever been before in this field. My office's intended enforcement action against Marriott and British Airways for practices leading that have been caused by poor cybersecurity practices, those fines run to multi-million pound fines. And our regulation has an impact now on trade deals, on civil liberties, and on the confidence that we have or don't have in our elections. Innovation is so very important as well, and it's part of the equation that by law I'm required to take into account when I make my decisions. And of course, the cases that we deal with are international too, Last month, I contributed to a data privacy day in Mexico. Um, I was talking there about my role on the ICD-PPC, which Chris mentioned. It's now called the Global Privacy Assembly, which is that crucial group of regulators. They're coming together to assist each other on joint enforcement. And this is so important because data knows no borders. So last week, I was in Canada. Now I'm here meeting with tech companies at, and also talking to academics at, at Berkeley and students. And I'm meeting also with the Attorney General for California to talk about CCPA enforcement. Why do you look so grim over there? Yeeks. <laughs> but I think that's what privacy regulation looks like today. So it's international, it's high profile, and it's dealing with what I call wicked issues with real societal impact. So today I'm briefly going to talk about the impact of people being so much more engaged than they've ever been before in digital privacy. And I want to show how complex data privacy is today and discuss a couple of important um, cases on my desk which will have and do have an international impact. And then I'm going to finish by talking a little bit about why I'm here. So I think what most defines the world in which all of us operate in today is that privacy isn't just going mainstream. Privacy is mainstream. If you watch the ads um, last Sunday during the, the game, did anybody watch the game last Sunday? No, you would have seen that Facebook and Apple and Google are really keen to present their privacy credentials to show their softer sides. So 
I think these big companies do understand that even if business is really, really good, they need to take consumers with them. And I think privacy is really part a big part of that. Companies, though, should also get credit when they do the right thing. Research backs this up, though. People's deep concern about privacy in the statistics. So the Pew Research Center in Washington, D.C. has found that four out of five Americans say that the potential risks they face because of data collection by companies outweighs the benefits. So time and time again, what we're seeing in these studies is that people want to wrestle back control and agency over their personal information. I don't think that should come as a surprise to anyone in this room, and it might be while... That might be why this room is so full today. And, you know, it isn't just U.S. citizens that are concerned about data privacy. Last year at the G20 in Japan, government officials and businesses and regulators were discussing a concern that different privacy regimes could pose a barrier to data flow and trade. And this is the same concern that underpins the creation of the OECD's fair information principles 40 years ago. So I guess what, I, what I'm saying is high stakes. There's, there's high stakes here. And I hope that you all had plenty of coffee this morning because I'm going to take you on a bit of a journey. So let's talk about all of you in this room. What's the impact of people caring about their privacy. And I've heard the argument from some that despite these concerns that people have about control of their own information, there has yet to be an impact on companies' bottom line. And there's a school of thought that says, yes, people care about their digital privacy, but no, that concern is not reflected in their daily actions. And I think all of us know that tech companies hold a huge amount of data about them, but they continue to use these companies' services. And that's not surprising because people want free digital services online, so they continue to hand over their data. I'm not blind to that argument, but there is a growing social movement that resists the monetization of personal data. And many object to their personal information being used in a way that manipulates their actions. So today, we see an increased number of class actions and group litigations. And here, I'm thinking not so much about those data breaches that are linked to poor cybersecurity practices but those actions and cases that deal with how companies and how government is using their personal information. And so the point here is that the growing cynicism from consumers about how their information is used and monetized doesn't necessarily result in individual actions walking away from products but in individuals that are supporting a coordinated strategy to have more meaningful control over how their data is used. And the GDPR, everyone in this room has heard of the GDPR, it supports the effort towards international coalescence because the very design of the legislation includes provisions for extraterritorial reach. So if you have a consumer or consumers in Berlin, they may not have decided to withdraw their consent from apps that are delivered from Silicon Valley, but they did want a law that would allow German regulators to have their backs when, it, when they use those apps or file complaints. 
I think we see a similar social movement for better rights here in the U.S. as well. And of course, the CCPA is front and center here. We're seeing similar movements supporting digital privacy law in other states. So we see Washington has a bill. It's front of the queue, perhaps, but Nebraska and New Hampshire and Virginia all potentially heading in that direction as well. And that's before we even consider the provisions in COPPA being upgraded and the development of antitrust laws into something more internationally recognized as a federal data protection law. So my point here is the direction of travel is only one way. It's going towards stronger rights. And all of this is consumer-led. So I think the key question in the next few years um, in the U.S. about this legislation is the same question that's being asked right now of the GDPR. So 18 months into the GDPR, has the law made a difference? So compulsory data breach reporting, compulsory data protection officers, new audit powers for the commissioner, eye-watering ability to fine. These, these are just tools that are supposed to ultimately lead to people having greater control over their personal information. So I think legislation like the CCPA still have a way to go before they're making a difference that they were drafted to achieve. And I've described the GDPR as a toddler law, and it hasn't quite got his feet yet. It certainly isn't running, but the legislators and uh, civil society and businesses are watching really closely. I think the challenge is, is that the, the files on our desk as a regulator are increasingly complex. And if you take, for example, my office's work on children and their digital privacy, it's a great example. Everybody that we talk to through our consultation agrees that kids need to be better protected online. Absolutely everybody agrees with that. And I think that's why our work on the age-appropriate design code is the most important work that I think I've ever done at the ICO. So parents and guardians have demanded greater rights for their kids online. The GDPR, for the first time in European law, requires special consideration for children, especially when it comes to targeting and tracking. So in the development of the UK's application of the GDPR, Parliament passed a provision that assigned the ICO as an independent regulator to draft a statutory code to better protect kids online. And it's not about age gating. It's not about keeping kids offline. It's about designing the right environment for kids and baking that design, privacy by, de by default, privacy by design, right into the services for kids. And, you know, if I was looking in a crystal ball today, in the coming decade, I think children's codes will be adopted by other jurisdictions in, the, in liberal democracies and that we will look back and find it astonishing that there was ever a time when we didn't have these legal responsibilities. Another example of the complexity of and the wicked files that are on my desk um, is my office's investigation into ad tech and real-time bidding. And that's been the work led by Simon McDougall, who's the Deputy Commissioner responsible for Innovation and Tax. So if you have any really difficult questions, they go to Simon in the front row. Um, but if you just imagine that I'm on a web page and an ad pops up in the sidebar for a tour of Alcatraz, and that might raise an eyebrow. Is it a coincidence 
that appears as I plan a trip to San Francisco. Or perhaps big tech companies are conspiring to keep me locked away. Or they've heard about my cousin Stanley's past. But of course, it isn't, it isn't a coincidence. And the process behind that ad being selected is a result of the complexity of the ecosystem, mostly opaque, and the almost instantaneous bidding process between advertisers. And we all know that that, that process involves enormous amounts of personal data, some of it sensitive personal data. It's a complex process. We can talk about it more in the Q&A, but the necessary changes to that ecosystem and that business model need to change. But it's an example, too, of how the ICO has had to approach these wickedly complex cases. We're in an era of digital innovation and ambition. So I think, as a regulator, it's just as critical for us to be curious and innovating about the way that we approach our work. So as a member of the EU, the UK has largely adopted the GDPR into its own law, and that law remains in place. The UK government has stated its commitment to high data protection standards equal to those of the EU, but has also announced an independent policy on data protection. The UK is also pursuing adequacy with the EU. If I, if I talk about how regulators need to be curious and need to be innovative in their approach of overseeing digital regulation, um, it's because we have to find the balance between enforcing change and encouraging change. So understanding the impact of privacy regulation on aspects like fair competition and markets and making sure that we value the benefits that innovation brings. So data protection in the UK was born in the 1970s out of a concern that the potential of emerging technologies would be lost if society didn't embrace innovation. And it still feels a bit like we're, we're there. But regulation has a critical role in reassuring people that they can support innovation because they're safe in the knowledge that somebody has their back. And that's why my office has an open and constructive dialogue with the organizations that we regulate. And we've implemented a sandbox program so developers and public bodies to, can come to us and get expert advice before they beta test their new services online. We have a grants program that funds privacy innovation. We have AI tools to help organizations explain the decisions that AI is making. So I think whether it's guidance of the document, uh, guidance documents online, whether it's the hundred people that we have answering questions of businesses, whether it's the tools that I've mentioned, most of my resources go to support advice and support for companies and public bodies getting data protection right. So it's not all about the sharp end of enforcement, except those are the activities that get the headlines. So really, we are more about proactive assistance. And when I think we have to levy a large fine, it's the whole system that has failed. It's not one body. So I'm very aware that we need to do more as regulators to help and assist. That's why I'm here in San Francisco. I want to hear about the work that you're doing. I want to hear about the work that you're doing that has an impact 
in sunny San Francisco to the the woman walking in uh, along in London in a in the London rain and mist. That's why I'm here. It's international. Um, I much appreciate the Commonwealth Club and to Chris and the organizers for inviting me to say a few words. I think I said more than a few words, but now we can chat. Perfect. Okay. Yes. Thank you. Good plan. Thank you, Commissioner Denham, for sharing your vision of privacy and for sharing some of the complexities you confront as a regulator. Um, among the most important regulators in the privacy world now. Um, to set the stage, could you tell us a little bit more about how your role as, uh, as information commissioner is different than, let's say, a Federal Trade Commission commissioner? We are completely independent of government. So I was appointed and report to Parliament as a whole. Um, Parliament scrutinizes the appointment, and it's a nonpartisan, non-political appointment. So we're a body that reports not to government, but to Parliament. We oversee all sectors of society when it comes to data protection. So that means political parties are subject to data protection law, the charitable sector, all public bodies, churches, Every agency that you can think of that is processing personal data is subject to our law. So we're very fortunate in the, in the UK because we're, we're a fairly well-funded. I could never say that we have enough budget, but we're a well-funded regulator. We're probably the largest data protection office globally. We have about 850 staff. But um, we are different from the FTC because we're a horizontal regulator where we're touching every different sector. That's different than being a financial regulator where you're just looking at banks and insurance. We have to know something about all of the businesses, and, and that is one of the challenges. So those are some important differences. And here in California, uh, we are contemplating creating something like a, 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 a DPA for, for the state. Are there lessons that we could draw on from your experience in the field? What, what are the types of things that we should be doing, we should be copying, and what are the things we should avoid? So, I mean, I am a, a creature of statute. So my powers and my responsibilities are set in the law. But I deeply believe that the law is only part of answering your, pro, your, your question. So you have to get a good law. But I, ha I have to say that it's the enforcement actions, the advisory functions, the willingness of a regulator to listen to those and regulate with the consent of those that we oversee. And so what needs to be done in successful regulation in privacy and, and consumer protection right now is that all of us have to work together because the one thing that we know is that the world will not look the same five years from now. So that's why principle-based legislation and I think codes of conduct that are developed by industry groups and yet are enforceable by a regulator is a very good approach. Because if you think about AI, you're not going to be able to regulate AI in the transportation sector in the same way that you would in the health sector, in the same way that you would in the financial sector. So I think it's going to get more complicated, but we need regulators that talk to those that they oversee because we can't understand it all ourselves. I want to return to the issue of machine learning, but before we get there, um, you're responsible both for privacy but also access to information. How do you think about those different those different roles, and do you see uh, where their contours might come into conflict, or um, where where they are, are they generally congruous? I'm glad that you asked that question because I think I think that. Our office has a lot of responsibilities because we oversee nuisance calls and nuisance texts as well as freedom of information. I think we, I have 11 statutes that, I, that we are responsible for. 
But generally, the freedom of information and overseeing government transparency, as well as protecting the privacy of individuals, are like flip sides, different sides of the same coin. So obviously, protection of privacy is an exemption for access to information. But I think we have a unique view of understanding what those tensions are. And they're the very same tensions that we're going to see in the what will be a noisy debate about regulating online content and conduct. That's actually one of the directions I wanted to take our conversation. Um, how do you see your role relating to the problem of disinformation and the, the kind of radicalization that we're seeing on some platforms? It's obviously a different approach in the U.S. than in in uh, on, than on the continent and in the U.K. So. <clears throat> It's challenging, of course, because what you are regulating, what, what needs to be regulated is some content, some content and conduct online. We already have rules around that, both in the US and the UK and Europe, which is where illegal content is published. The tricky question is, is what about content that makes people uncomfortable? Content that is inappropriate? for children, how do you actually deal with regulating that in a way that still protects freedom of expression, um, open political debate? So really what you're seeing there is the tension between some of those values and some of those rights. I think that the um, the UK is... Are those are those wicked questions from the audience? Excellent. You're going to be here all afternoon. Um, so content and, and conduct online is is going to be very noisy and tricky. But just like the U.S., the U.K. has a very strong um, history and culture of freedom of the press and free expression. These are very important values. I have to work increasingly with my colleagues in media regulation and competition law and consumer protection to make this happen. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. And, and so just it, looking at the questions, the one on the very top, this must have been specially engineered, is is definitely relevant to something you said about the ad tech industry. So in your prepared remarks, you mentioned that the real-time bidding process needs to change. I wanted to invite you to go a level deeper on that. Oh, what you see is that the need to change, is it systemic or is it can be addressed by um, uh, um, uh privacy technologies, and this is motivated by this top question here with the growing scrutiny of ad tech and behavioral advertising, is uh, real-time bidding even compatible with GDPR and CCPA? I think at minimum, it stretches our, our legal compliance requirements because in real-time bidding, you do not have transparency. How can you have transparency? In real-time bidding, there right now there is processing of special category data, which is data like uh, data about our health and our political beliefs. Children's data is wrapped up in that egos in that ecosystem as well. And the you know I, I could invite Simon McDougall to come up here, but I think that the big challenge that we had is how do we enforce the law which does have clear requirements for transparency and fairness and legal basis. So what is the legal basis to be able to process that data? If it's legitimate interest in the, in the company, where's the analysis that they can prove that to the regulator? And consent can't be a basis if you're, if you're stretching it with people don't even understand that the number of companies that are processing that data in the ecosystem what we don't want to do is we don't want to come up with a finding that benefits just the big players and prejudice the smaller players in the ecosystem. So we're really careful that we need to work with our competition, 
Authority colleagues, we're actually joining with them on a market study that the Competition and Market Authority is doing on digital advertising. All that to say is it's a tough question. We don't have the answers. We need to work on it with industry and with our our other regulator colleagues. So you discussed it in the sense that it's an ecosystem and wicked problems do have this characteristic that many people are affected by solutions. Solutions often result in a kind of management problem uh, where uh, one has to constantly revisit the rules. Um, do you have any instincts as to how you view the ecosystem? Like where um, are, are there, for instance, is it as simple enough to say that there are some parts that could just be cleaved off? Um, uh, let, let's say those ads that follow you all day rather than ones that are more instantaneous or so on. Do you get that sense or uh, do you have other instincts you could share with us about the ecosystem? I think what we're really waiting for and the reason that we convened um, two roundtables with industry players and civil society is we are looking for industry to help innovate around the solutions. So we don't want to tell industry and businesses how to meet their obligation. We want them to innovate around privacy. So everybody's innovating around data. What about innovating around privacy and help us find the answers? I have to say one more thing about ecosystems, though. That's been a significant change that I've seen in the last 15 years that I've been in regulation. And that is that we aren't looking so closely at individual players. We are looking at ecosystems. So we did a lot of work on um, data and democracy around everybody knew about Facebook and Cambridge Analytica and fake news and misinformation and potential manipulation in our politics. But we looked at the entire ecosystem. Our investigation called Democracy Disrupted is about political parties, data analytic companies. It's about the platforms and our solutions and recommendations are about the whole problem, not about one player. It's an interesting approach because there's a real risk out there that the public's mind gets um, uh, connects the dots between this type of targeting and some of the uglier things we're seeing online. Um, and you know, my next question—I don't have to do any work because the questions are so good from this audience. Because the next the next one is directly relevant to that. It's the Brexit problem. Um, so uh, post-Brexit, how do you plan to work with other data protection authorities? And more generally, um, I'd love to hear your perspective on the challenge of, of seeking adequacy um, uh, given Brexit. Okay, so let's start with, I think everybody in the room knows that a couple of weeks ago, the UK started its process to uncouple, I won't use the B word, to uncouple with the EU. So what that means is we have this transition period until the end of December where the data flows look more or less the same, but the ICO does not sit on the coordinating body for GDPR, the decision-making body, which is the European Data Protection Board. So we're off the board. We have competence and jurisdiction in our own right to regulate companies that are doing business in the UK. So everybody knows, most people know about the two, about the one-stop shop in the EU. Hands up. Most people do. So that's the, that's the coordinating decision making for cross-border cases. Well, guess what? Now there's a two-stop shop <laughs> because you have to deal with the ICO as a lead authority as well as the lead authority in the EU. So two-stop shop. So we will be investigating and enforcing in our own, our own right. How do I see the ICO working with our European colleagues and DPAs around the world? That's one of the reasons why I think it's really helpful that I'm the chair of the Global Privacy Assembly because my, my objective during the time that I'm chair is to build coordinated enforcement and cooperative enforcement mechanisms around the world. We will have bilateral relations with our European colleagues, especially the ones that oversee the same companies that we do. So I think that will be possible. Um, but your last question 
was last well, part of the question. How do you think adequacy is going to go? And, and, you know, there is a short timeline in a number of complicating factors that I'll, I'll prompt you on. Right. So <clears throat> adequacy, the, the UK government um, and the prime minister has said that they will be pursuing a quick adequacy assessment from the EU. And I think a lot of people in this room knows that an adequacy assessment process is not always quick. So we have, we have 10 months for the EU to, to look at our systems in the UK and say whether or not we are essentially equivalent to the EU framework. One part of me thinks we have a very good story to tell. We've got the GDPR in our law. Other countries that have adequacy or partial adequacy don't have that standard. Um, the, I think the, the sensitive areas will be around the UK's um, surveillance systems. I think there we have a good story to tell as well in terms of the oversight of intelligence services and, and uh, bulk data collection. But the timing will be tight and the ICO will be part of the process in that we will be providing details on our regulatory action and how robust it is or not to the, to the government. So this might just be talk, but um, uh, the, the prime minister just in the last week kind of discussed the idea of a third way for privacy for the UK. Um, minister Johnson said that the UK would develop a separate and independent series of policies surrounding data protection what could that possibly mean? So I haven't <laughs> talked to the Prime Minister about what this means, but there's a couple of things in that. Of course, the government of the UK will have its independent data protection policy as a sovereign state. We will have that. It will be closely aligned with the EU's because we're seeking an adequacy finding. So you can still have an independent data protection policy and be adequate with the EU because the EU is our biggest trading partner. So that consistency and some equivalency of the laws, especially around the services industry, think of financial services is really, really important. So I don't think that those are contradictory ideas, but I also think that the UK and the UK regulators are known for proactive, pragmatic regulation. We work really closely with the U.S. I have worked very closely with U.S. regulators in many files, including Cambridge Analytica and Facebook, with the FTC. We work on, um, uh, on a lot of files together, and I think that will just continue. I, 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 I want to ask about that as well, but sticking on, on the um, um, on the on the Brexit issue. Um, interestingly, your res, your responsibilities are both horizontal and vertical. So you've brought cases, or you've uh, you, you've brought actions involving the state. So the HRMC mm -hmm. um, action is one that I'd invite you to to speak about. I mean, I, I see like one potential um, uh, problem in the kind of in the adequacy issues is not just GCHQ which triggers the kind of Schrems objections. But to the extent that the uncoupling was um, motivated by anti-immigrant uh, sentiment, uh, there could also be a lot of concern about domestic law enforcement. Um, so you've been acted on, on face recognition, and uh, you also pursued this HRMC case. And I, I want to invite you to, to talk about both of those actions and how your role could um, temper concerns about the law enforcement aspects of um, of your role? Yeah. I think some of the most challenging files we have um, on our desk right now are about law enforcement. So just uh, with the HRM, HRMC case, that was about the collection by the government of voice prints of millions of individuals. And uh, this is, again, this is my example of a failure of the system because when we looked into the way that the government collected voice prints, that's a sensitive biometric, as sensitive as faces, collected that information without adequate notice and therefore couldn't rely on consent. 
And, you know, the sad, the ending to that story is they could have built that system with privacy baked in, but because they didn't, we had to order them to delete over 5 million voice prints and start over again. That's not what we want to do as regulators. In looking at facial recognition technology, it's different than the commercial sector. If you think about the police and the extensive CCTV system that we have in the UK, and you think about the police being able to monitor us when we move through private or public spaces. And that's different than a, a FRT applied in a commercial context as an authentication tool, right? What we're talking about with the police is identification and mass collection of us all when we're moving around uh, in those places. So mobile extraction, what, I mean, what are the rights of a victim of sexual assault? She can't really say, or he can't really say, don't take my phone away. And guess what? Bulk extraction from your mobile phone could be, it's, it's your whole life, right? We carry our whole lives around in our pockets. And you think about sex workers that have been sexually assaulted and the downloading of the information can prejudice them. And that's not fair. And I think downloading of bulk data from victims is a chill on people coming forward with their complaints. So that's why I say these are, these are really tricky issues. And law enforcement is a place where technology and rights and the impact of technology, I think, are really at the forefront. We have a question from the audience that's very straightforward and perhaps should have been the first. And, and that is simply, why do you care about privacy? Just in your own words. How can you not care <laughs> about privacy? So it's probably, it's been over two decades that, that I've been either a practitioner or a consultant or a regulator. And I'm in my 15th year as a regulator in four jurisdictions. And maybe some of you will think that I can't keep a job, but it's just, it's just because these are such fundamental issues, Chris, to our society, to our freedoms, to our elections, to our children and making them good digital citizens. These are massively important issues. And I'm so privileged to be able to lead an organization that's focused on this. Your organization has made notice, big notice of liabilities. I mean, just looking through my chart here, we have British Airways at 200 million and um, Marriott, which you mentioned at over 100 million, a telecom company called EE Limited, mm -hmm. significant fine. Um, tell us about how you think about penalty. Do you have a, do you have a rationale? Um, and is it as straightforward as the size and the kind of nature or what's going on in your office's rationale when, when let's say BA gets a number like 200 million? So we have, um, a regulatory action policy that is laid before parliament that we consulted on. So how we determine what kind of sanction is being applied to an organization is documented in our regulatory action policy. So you can see it right there in black and white. That said, we've got a whole array of tools in our toolbox, everything from a warning letter, a warning letter that is made public, all the way through to a stop processing order, which I can tell you impacts the company's bottom line more than a 200 million pound fine. So we have an array of tools and we apply them in consideration of the impact and the harm and the numbers of people affected and whether or not that organization has complied with us in the past, you know, how they bring forward solutions. But we have a whole panel of individuals that help us look at the the right figure or the right kind of redress for people or sanction against people. And, you know, the one more thing about how many lawyers are there in the room? Oh, my goodness, I didn't know the whole room was full of lawyers. Okay, you'll appreciate this. So <clears throat> our process, our process 
includes administrative fairness, of course. And what that means is our preliminary notice of a fine is usually a confidential discussion between the, the company, the public body, and us. So when that gives the company an ability to come back to us and tell their story and be able to take issue with our findings and the number of fine. What happened in Marriott and in British Airways for the first time is those companies went public with the preliminary notice. So it was because it was deemed to be a market issue. So they went public with our fine and our number, not us. Not us. We just confirmed it. So what that means is we're still in the process of examining British Airways and Marriott's response to our preliminary notice. How many lawyers in the audience appreciated that difference? Three. Okay. (laughs) Um, We have a number of questions here surrounding uh, machine learning. And so there is a um, EU expert group report on AI liability out there that makes a number of dramatic recommendations, logging algorithms, in some cases uh, shifting burdens of proof to help the data subject when they think they've uh, been been the subject of a determination. Um, what is your view of the, the challenges presented by machine learning? And if you could comment on this EU report, it would be useful as well. So I say the the EU report um, is pretty comprehensive, and given that the EU has said they're going to issue separate regulations around AI and machine learning, it's definitely important reading for everybody in this room. But I think um, machine learning and AI does turn um, what we have been regulating on its head. So this, I think machine learning and artificial intelligence and the impact they have on all the rest of us going about our lives and decision, decisions made, we need to actually look at governance and accountability mechanism, mechanisms to be put in place. Because otherwise we can't really regulate this area and we want to take advantage of the innovation and the societal benefits of machine learning. It's just that you can't identify necessarily what the question is that you're trying to answer at the outset of machine learning. And that, I think that's where it turns data protection on its head. So I, if I was looking in my crystal ball, I think the solution to that is an accountability and governance requirement in law for regulators to go in and look at how companies are making decisions about data. That's really what we're going to be regulating. How are you making decisions? And is it a checkbox exercise? Or do you have real systems in place to be able to make sure that you're thinking about the humans, not just ones and zeros in your in your data? So let me push you a little bit on that. What to, what to you does um, accountability mean in that context? It's kind of a slippery term. Well, accountability is, I think, the most important upgrade in EU law. So uh, statutory responsibility for companies to be aware of the risks that they're creating for others and take steps to mitigate those risks. And that's done in a system way with the right policies and processes and training and checks and balances and due diligence around data decisions. That's what it means. We are soon, um, we were consulting right now on an accountability framework at the ICO because I think what companies are asking us is what does good look like when it comes to sound data governance and what are the proof points that we need to be able to demonstrate when regulators come calling. And I think there's really good work that's being done in North America on this, but the ICO is really focused on that around it especially around machine learning and artificial intelligence. You look puzzled. No, I'm, I'm thinking about your response, and I'm thinking that um, about the governance issues more broadly. And, and so 
the governance puzzle is going to become um, more complex, um, especially as uh, privacy rules diffuse. And so you mentioned in your setup that uh, we have the CCPA here in California, but we also have a ballot initiative that's going to be on the November 2020. It's likely to be on the November 2020 uh, um, uh, ballot. And it's clear if you read it that like one of the goals of this uh, uh, measure is to uh, achieve adequacy for California itself. So there's there's um, language in it that doesn't look very American from a privacy perspective. It looks much more European. And then and then you have the creation of a California body, a California essentially a, something like a data protection authority. And I'm wondering how you think about this proposal. What do you think about the pro- the prospect that California could be adequate as a state within um, our nation? And how would you liaise and um, um, cooperate with, let's say, the future data protection authority of of, of San Francisco? Mm-hmm. Well, it's a great question. And, you know, if I just go back to Cambridge Analytica and the Facebook case, we were interacting not just we as in the, the UK because we had Cambridge Analytica servers. We had their kit. And so we were interacting not just with the FTC, but also with state attorneys general who are carrying out their own investigations. So we we already have interactions, I would say, at the state level as well as at the at the federal level. And the GDPR does recognize that jurisdictions within a country can apply for adequacy. And you know, using a Canadian example, Quebec, which is a province in Canada. Um, they were seeking adequacy as a province, even though the federal private sector law had been deemed adequate. So Canada is only partially adequate, and Canada is a federated state. So I, I see that possible. What is uh, California is what the sixth largest economy in the world? I think we're a little larger than yours. I think you, we're sixty-four million. You're larger than we are. So, so again, why not? Why not? Because the law. Well, the law anticipates that subnational entities will seek adequacy. It's a it's a wild idea. We can spin up our California AWS cloud, yeah. and um, it would be interesting to see what what will happen there. You mentioned Cambridge Analytica, and I wanted you to go a little deeper on that. I mean, as I understand it, the forensics experts uh, were there in situ, and your office came in to seize the computers. Is that what happened? Yeah, that's what happened. We um. We had to, we had to get a, a warrant to search Cambridge Analytica and to seize their kit, seize their servers, including, um, information in the cloud. And that was a new power that we didn't have in the past. So, um, we kicked out the Facebook auditors and we didn't kick down the doors, but we did have really cool enforcement jackets. You have the coats. We have the coats. And we went in. We've had the coats for a long time, though, Chris. It wasn't just for that. And we <laughs> we took the kit, and we're still going through some of the data because the data that we seized is the equivalent of, I think, 55 billion pieces of paper. And so this was a case where... Um, many, many jurisdictions and their citizens were caught up in that database, and we had to have one full-time person, Simon's team, just coordinating the questions from jurisdictions around the world. So that I think that Facebook, um, Cambridge Analytica, why is that a watershed moment? I think it was the first time that people woke up to see the kind of potential or the actual impact in our democratic process. And I think people said, whoa, that's a bit scary. What's happening here? And then you saw a data protection authority. I mean, we prosecuted Cambridge Analytica, find Facebook. Cambridge Analytica is no longer in business. Um, the Federal Trade Commission does have this power. They have the power to to demand an on-site inspection, but I have never seen it happen in a privacy case. So it was really exciting to see um, um, uh, your your case come out. We have a number of um, uh, questions. There's a whole set of themes surrounding a reaction to something you said in your introductory remarks. You just, you discussed the idea that privacy was going mainstream, um, that um, the direction of privacy is is 
in one way. And we have a number of reactions basically saying, are you concerned that it goes too far? And there's a number of different ways to think about it. There's the innovation issue. There's uh, conflicts surrounding things like Clearview AI, which has uh, legitimate law enforcement approaches but does create a kind of uh, a scary, um, um, scary environment. So we could become, uh, we could go somewhere along a slippery slope of demanding too much privacy or one uh, that, that, that has knock-on effects on innovation or, or law enforcement. How do, you, how do you think about that? Well, for a long time, um, and for the lawyers in the room, you'll remember that this was a very specialized sort of backroom area of the law. And, and, you know, there'd be intellectual property law, and then there's data protection law, and that, does anyone really care? But now, I mean, the demand for your expertise to think through some of these wicked problems is more important than it's ever been. I don't worry that privacy and privacy regulation is going to go too far. I worry that people aren't going to care enough because the laws require us to have sensible, practical, real-world regulators that aren't looking for perfection but are tackling with courage the really important issues. So I think a lot of, a lot of the success, if you want to say success, getting the right balance for privacy and other rights is going to be dependent on the regulators and civil society bringing the really important issues to the table and not getting lost in, um, administrivia, which sometimes happens with the law, right? Let's forget about the administrivia, but let's look at the spirit of the law and analyze it through the lens of important issues of impact. That's what I'm trying to do. It's, but to do that, you need courage and you do need the right law and you also need the funding to be able to do, do that work. But, um, my longtime collaborator, Nico Van Eyck, talks about the um, GDPRists and um, the people who say, actually, the, the, the answers are quite simple. It's the GDPR, and you need to do what this law says. And your office and your response there um, recognizes uh, more complexity and more nuance. Uh, but as a result of UK's exit, there's going to be less traction um, in Brussels, perhaps, um, how do you think about the kind of conflict between pragmatism and the GDPRists? <laughs> the GDPRists. So I've, I've never said that the GDPR is a perfect law. It isn't a perfect law, but it has those baseline principles that are really about putting people at the center of business models. And that's a good thing. Will the UK's pragmatic approach to regulating the UK's version of the GDPR. Um, I think we'll have traction, especially through our leadership of the Global Privacy Forum and also the, our leadership in the OECD. So I do think we will have traction there. And I also think we are Europe. So the UK's in Europe. We have Convention 108. Um, we will continue to be active in the Council of Europe, and the Council of Europe is bringing together non-European jurisdictions around the table. So there are other ways to be influential, but I have to say I will miss my EU colleagues and, and sitting around that, that table, and it was a sad day for us, um, our last meeting of the EDPV, but the ICO did get a standing ovation from our our European colleagues. Well-deserved. And we just have a couple minutes left, so let me uh, maybe we could close with a question about Huawei. Um, there is a great conflict uh, and increasing um, calls for kind of nationalization and sovereign treatment of data and technology, and the flashpoint surrounds Huawei. Does your office have a role or a view on this growing um, uh, these growing calls for national control over technology and data? I think all of us feel that data localization laws or data localization policies um, are not the best way for the world to go. What's more important is the data 
flows responsibly and that data flows with control. And, you know, I do think that that dynamic tension between data flows and um, cybersecurity and the security of nation states is a really big issue. Our piece of the pie, just like we have just a piece of the pie in disinformation and misinformation, is just around the security of infrastructure and, and networks and personal data. But obviously the Huawei discussions, the Huawei decisions are around trade and nation state security. So that's a little bit beyond me. We're going to have to leave it at that um, because we are out of time here. Let's give a huge thank you to Elizabeth Denham. Thank you. I'm Chris Hufnagel, and now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club, the place where you're in the know, is adjourned. Thank you, Chris. I get to bang.